Welcome to Hort Culture, where a group of extension professionals and plant people talk about the business, production, and joy of planting seeds and helping them grow. Join us as we explore the culture of horticulture. Hello, what is up? It's cold outside. If you, if it is not January when you are listening to this, then I hope that you are warmer. That is my hope for you right now. But it was zero degrees at my house this morning. Uh, so I'm on here today with the regular, the good old crew, the Ray and the bald boys. But we also <laughs> have a wonderful special guest who's going to talk all thing economics with us. And in an exciting way, because he's in ag economics, and we know the best economics are the agricultural ones. So we have Dr. Tim Woods on with us today. How are you, Dr. Woods? Are you cold? Are you warm? How are we feeling today? Thanks, Alexis. So great to be on with you guys here today. I am cold. It's, uh, <laughs> it's it a has been frosty, cold. frosty January, for sure. Yeah, as of recording, there's still, I know, uh, well, I need to ask you guys up here in Georgetown where I am at, there is a little bit of snow left, but how much snow did Lexington and Le- uh, Alexis going on south where you're at, uh, how much did you you guys get as of the, the recording? Yeah, we've had some snow here as of the recording date. Enough have a lot more on my street twice. Yeah. Yeah, there's still snow on the ground. Like, yeah. There's enough snow that I fell and got snow in my pants this morning. Well, oh, there's cool. that. that doesn't really say that. Yeah. <laughs> but was there that could be enough... between zero and four inches. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't give us much of a range, Alexis. I, I, but the real question is, was there enough snow to make you worried about greenhouses and hot tunnels oh, down yeah. where you're at? I went out after kind of the first round of little flurries that we got mm-hmm. and took my broom to the top of the tunnel and, you know, just yeah. pulled some off just to kind of see what was going on. And there wasn't enough but if we got any more, if we get, then I'd probably be a little concerned. But no, I was like, yeah, it's too cold for this. I'm going inside. <laughs> I know up this way, it was a dry, powdery snow. And that always gives yeah. me um, uh, a little bit of assurance that, you know, things yeah. are going to kind of be okay. And then it gets slippery and then I fall because that's what yes. I did this morning. <laughs> because you were out checking plant babies, I bet, really early. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, zero degrees when I walked outside this morning. It's not and- a lot of degrees. Wind chill of negative one, so I went out to check on on everything. Negative fun. And negative fun. Negative fun. But, negative fun degrees. Yeah, <laughs> but it's warm. I mean, warm. It's uh, we have a warm spell. It's like twenty five degrees here right now. So. Uh, oh, I know it's wonderful. And our sweat. son, who is out of school today, he is so upset because the <laughs> snow is melting. We have a south facing slope behind the house uh-huh. that acts as a the perfect sledding hill. He is not happy. He is Aww. angry and I'm staying away from him because <laughs> it is melting. And I assure him that all the weather forecasters say we're going to have more snow at some point tomorrow. And if that is wrong, I'm going to have to move out. I cannot <laughs> live, live here any longer because he is sorely disappointed that we're, that we're losing the snowpack. Yes, I'm calling it a snowpack. It's going to be mud season pretty soon. We just love that in Kentucky, it don't we? Will. Yeah. If you don't like the weather, just wait a few minutes and it's going to change we're not talking weather today, although we could probably talk for hours about mud season. Even in plant world, mud season is not a fun season. But we are talking about some ag econ today. And I'm really excited because I like to nerd out about all of this, like, I don't know, Tim, Tim, Tim is, gets our gold star 
for our, our guest awards. So sorry to all of our other guests, but he sent us PowerPoint slides to review because he is an expert and we are not. And he's probably well, listened to our show before and he knows bro. that we do he's not stay on topic. He's like, these people are <laughs> hopeless. All the hell they are so lost about everything, but that's why he's here because we are not great ag economists. And he is. So I'm excited to hear, Tim, all of your yeah. horticulture industry updates. Like, I'm pumped. Yeah, well, I think, you know, as we talk about the weather forecast, we're going to not necessarily be giving a lock, lockdown forecast, but we will be looking ahead and doing a little outlook for the economic forecast, the economic uh, uh, trends that we've been seeing, that Tim's been seeing and, and we've been seeing. Um, and I, I work with Tim in the Center for Crop Diversification at the University of Kentucky. And he's had a really interesting and long, diverse career uh, leading to this point, including some extension appointments in different different uh, places and different f- points of focus. So I thought maybe, Tim, uh, everybody across the, the Commonwealth uh, and beyond seems to know you for one reason or another. But I was wondering maybe if you could just give us the... The, the nickel tour of your uh, your journey to this point through working with blueberry growers and, and your first mm. extension meet, farm visit and all that kind of fun stuff that we've talked about before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been kind of a, a long, fun journey. I've been here in Kentucky now 27 years working in extension. Uh, one of my very first uh, kind of farm jobs was working on a blueberry farm uh, up in Indiana, uh, actually thought I was going to be a blueberry farmer, really enjoyed that. Uh, 20 acres of blueberries. Wow. Um, great experience. Yeah. Uh, wound up after a uh, master's degree going to work with a blueberry farmers co-op up in Maine. And uh, that was a really super experience too. And that really uh, kind of gave me the bug for uh, extension and working with farmers and appreciating the marketing challenges, especially uh, uh in Michigan, where my granddad was a fruit farmer, uh, where I went to uh, Michigan State for more school still, working with the fruit and vegetable industries up there. Michigan, of course, is a really big uh, center for a lot of large-scale commercial horticulture, as you guys know. Uh, But then uh, down here in Kentucky, which, you know, you guys know it's not really uh, historically been considered a major horticulture production state, but as we're going to get into some things here today, long, steady growth in innovation and markets and local food uh, opportunities and, you know, all the high tunnel growth, the produce auctions, uh, on and on, lots of other uh, kind of innovations that have come into play, especially here in recent years, that has just really helped uh, stimulate a lot of uh, great growth in this industry. You mentioned uh, several things there, and it, it, we are in very interesting times, I think, here in Kentucky, because it seems like that I've worked with producers that market at all levels. I mean, small farm stand, they hit the middle markets in that gray area with like farm to school programs at kind of middle price tier, middle production level. And then there's the uh, wholesale producers, but it seems to be just about as diverse or more diverse than I can ever remember it being in Kentucky. And you said that it was a slow growth, and that's what I've always felt. We've been on this trajectory in Kentucky, whereas maybe some states just north of us or just south of us, you know, they were, you know, at a different production level earlier than we were. But we're, we've kind of been on the slow growth curve. And I'm in extension for way more years than I'm going to admit. But it's been fascinating over the years seeing 
how people produce things and how they get them to market and how they add value. Uh, and I know you talk a lot about these uh, topics, uh, you and the others there at CCD, Brett and Josh and others. And it's always fascinating to me where we are in Kentucky now and how we've gotten here. And it's not been real fast, has it? It's like been this slow kind of progression. Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, just a few new growers coming here, a few new market opportunities opening there, expanding farmers markets. We saw the, uh, I remember the very first produce auction opening up in uh, Hopkinsville, uh, the Fairview produce auction and it, back in the late nineties, they were all excited because they had a hundred thousand dollars worth of sales. And you know, that auction all by itself will pass $10 million in sales wow. this past year. Uh, and so, you know, we went from one auction to now we have six and every one of these market channels just seems to have, have grown, adapted and found a place of connection here in this market and community that we've got around Kentucky. It seems like we're a small farm state. And I think the state of horticulture being in a, a state with a lot of small farms, it kind of speaks to that because, you know, the, the direct to market outlets and things like that. We're not all wholesale producers here in Kentucky. I know we have listeners outside of the state and you may be in an area that has, it's more typical to have large scale production, but it seems like that's a reflection of the kind of state that we're in and the long history that goes back with agriculture in Kentucky. It just seems to add to me, it's always been almost like a mirror of that, especially with the state of horticulture now that we're hitting at all levels. You mentioned, you know, produce auctions all the way down to, you know, the small grower that, you know, grows for a farmer's market. So mm -hmm. it's fascinating. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair, fair take. And, you know, we, we are dominated by uh, very small scale uh, producers, but I think what that has helped us to uh, see emerge in Kentucky is uh, this kind of a market bubble that's been kind of insulated a little bit from the national national trends that have actually created a lot of difficulties for the really large scale traditional commercial horticulture uh, spaces. And it we'll seems like some of the wholesale trends have hit us quite as hard, like that's right. as a monoculture, as a, as a, we're not all at the same level of production. Yeah, I've noticed that, that I, I see the wholesale trends and sometimes I don't discount them because they're very, very, very important, especially to mm -hmm. our larger producers. But I know that we have a little bit of that insulation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, a big part of that is due to the very strong support we have for uh, local branding, the Kentucky mm -hmm. Proud program that's been around for a long time. Uh, we've got a very strong uh, certified market program that the Kentucky Farm Bureau is maintained. And so uh, a very strong agritourism on-farm retail mm -hmm. uh, market network. And a lot of those folks are uh, sourcing from places like these produce auctions. Yeah. Uh, so well, I think, you know, one of the things I'm here, Ray, you mentioned as far as the insulation and something that you, Tim and I, that Tim and I saw in this uh, USDA Ag Marketing Service project we worked on back during COVID was that actually for some of our markets, whereas other markets were getting hit hard by supply chain issues and, and mm -hmm. ours did too, it actually, for, for many of our farmers market vendors and our produce auctions, it was actually some of the strongest years of sales that they had had on, on, on their records to date. And I'm thinking, you know, COVID, you don't get much bigger picture than that. 
Um, but as we as we think about, I'm just going to keep us in the big picture, and then we'll move into some some details. And I'm going to make sure we talk about the market ready program a little later. Other other kind of big picture market influences, things that you know you see as at at the highest level affecting Kentucky specialty crops, uh, the markets and the producers. Yeah, Brett. You know, I think that's a one of the things that I have been watching very closely, especially in the last 10, 10-ish years, and it's accelerating, is the growth in imports, especially around our fresh produce. A lot of that, of course, is coming uh, from uh, Mexico. Uh, we saw this past year the uh, biggest amount of imported produce by value uh, coming into the United States than we have ever seen. And of course, a lot of that is being driven by uh, low labor costs uh, that are there, um, relatively high labor costs that we're seeing uh, uh, contrary to that in the United States. And, you know, take your pick. You know, in California, you've got water issue, land cost issue, labor access issue, uh, uh, burgeoning population and demand for land and big traditional places of agricultural production like that, that have particularly been the salad bowl of America, so to speak, uh, have been under immense pressure. And similar things uh, in in kind of different stories going on in places like Florida and in Texas. Uh, And so, uh, you know, that's something that that we're watching uh, closely and, and several Several crops that that we can think of that we grow here in Kentucky, things like tomatoes, uh, uh, strawberries, uh, some other kind of labor intensive uh, uh, crops. Those are things that we have to keep an eye on what's happening with those markets, because what we're seeing is the share of products that are coming in from a very low labor cost place uh, like Mexico, where you're looking at six to eight dollars a day for labor uh, is just accelerating at a crazy rate. And it's a principle of economics of uh, comparative advantage of resources tend to to migrate toward places where they're going to be best used and Mm -hmm. the lowest cost production to produce uh, products for a market that is willing to pay for those products you know, we used to look at uh, places like Mexico as primarily a winter supply market, but they've massively expanded. Uh, and you know, we're going to maybe have a chance to get into talk around some of the controlled environment agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and we, we think about uh, tomatoes are one of the really uh, important uh, partners that works with some of our controlled environment in Kentucky now, uh, Master Nardi's is the biggest importer of tomatoes from Mexico, period, bar none, it's not even close. Uh-huh. Uh, and as we've looked at, you know, the feasibility of controlled environment and opportunities here in in, uh, in Kentucky, the reality is, is that places like Mexico, uh, it's not just that they have a low labor cost, but they're able to build an industry and infrastructure there that allows them to produce uh, a massive amount of production using controlled environment mm-hmm. and shipping that product into the 
high value next door neighbor of the United States. Uh, and so, yeah, those imports are going to continue to grow and put pressure on our uh, wholesale level of production. We've seen the, uh, frankly, the uh, volume of production overall in the United States for fresh vegetables on a slow, steady decline over the past 15 years. Mm. Uh, and, wow. Uh, you know, Is that just on the wholesale level, Tim? Uh, it's, it's for everything. For, for everything. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, you know, of course, wholesale is the is the it's largest the, by yeah. volume of yeah. far. And as you know, we had sort of opened our discussion here. There are many different kinds of markets and many opportunities that are particularly well played in the local products to local markets mm-hmm. spaces, like what we have with the agritourism, farm to school. Kentucky Proud programs and restaurants. Uh, yeah, those sorts of markets like that uh, can tend to be a little bit more insulated from some of these larger uh, economic forces like that. But it's not completely insulated. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you, you op- opened the door uh, by saying a, a four-letter word uh, at some point, uh, cost. And this is maybe something we can we can open it up, and I'd be curious to hear what uh, Alexis, uh, as a grower, and Alexis and Ray as as agents, have you you yourself or others had your uh, eyes bug out over the last few years over the input costs? Because you know we're talking about uh, imports and these kind of macro level trends. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think everybody's been subjected to has been the increase in input costs because fertilizer mm-hmm. is fertilizer, no matter what ground it's going on. Any any initial thoughts from you, Tim, or or and then maybe some perspectives yeah. on whether people have been experiencing that uh, out in the in the world. Yeah, well, we we certainly track that, and and farmers of every type uh, have been wringing their hands over higher input costs, pesticides, uh, fungicides, fertilizers. We have a, an index that actually tracks uh, uh, prices paid by farmers in the U.S. vegetable sector. And we saw sort of through this COVID period, 21, 22, it took a massive hike uh, in input costs and down a a little bit in 23, but still at very high levels where farmers are paying more for uh, pesticides and fungicides, but it's also for farm equipment and other kinds of infrastructure and packaging, uh, interest costs that translate over into uh, operating expenses. And any farmer that you're going to talk to out there, produce or otherwise, uh, they've been wringing their hands trying to navigate themselves. How do we think about our profits, our viability, managing these higher costs? And and uh, can we still raise the prices to cover our higher now break even costs? Will the market bear that? And to some extent, uh, it will and it has. But how far can you go with that? And I think we're going to continue to see some some markets bear those costs better than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember, oh, go ahead, Alexis. I, yeah. I was just saying. I remember when um, I don't know if it was twenty twenty, the end of twenty twenty, or the beginning of twenty twenty one. It might have been. I was talking to our fertilizer sales guy. We have a an area that does a. Uh, place that does like bulk you know you can go get a a scoop full of urea or something along those lines in Boyle County and I was talking to him and he said that 
urea was and urea is a, a night predominantly nitrogen source of fertilizer um that a lot of growers use it was three hundred dollars a scoop and practically overnight it went to nine hundred dollars a scoop and he was like i'm not making more money off of it that wasn't him you know making a huge profit he's like my profit margins are the same yeah. it just increased in price that much and you know to see that and then to like really put a number on it and it wasn't just, you know, chemically synthesized fertilizers, right? It was everything. It doesn't matter if you're organic, if you're using compost, you know, gas went up, everything did. So to really put a number like $300 versus $900 to imagine that going being every input that a grower uses and then not really being expected to raise prices was really hard. And I, I, you had to raise prices, but then you got pushback on it. And that's when you're doing direct to retail and direct marketing, uh, that can be hard to educate your cons uh, consumer on that. Like you're not trying to overprice them. You just, you got to make them, you got to make a dollar, right? So, right. Uh, just that levels rising. Yeah. Just, just to be yeah. clear, Tim, Tim, you personally set those prices. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, do we have a cell phone number for Tim? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so can you, can you give us some insight, you know, and, uh, 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 you know, whatever level I'm operating at, let's just be generous and say fifth grade insight into so what dynamics have kind of caused or factored into those input costs, prices mm -hmm. increasing. Like what, what's the, you go to the, the, the Southern States or wherever and you, you get your bill and it's easy to say, Oh yeah, everything's going up. Everything's, everything's increasing. Mm -hmm. But what are some of the things that have kind of led to that? Yeah. Yeah. I think there, I think there are a handful of, forces that have all kind of come together all at the same time, Brett, you know, it's a, we're all probably tired of hearing it in conversations with places like car dealerships or computer equipment, but supply chain disruption was a real thing during COVID. And it impacted a lot of manufacturing. Uh, it made it very difficult for a production of typical inventories. It made it very difficult to forecast a lot of a trucking and distribution infrastructure went through crazy disruption. And we certainly saw it in the produce industry where we saw trucking costs spike to the highest they had ever been by far uh, during 2022 and came back down. But uh, we have this ripple effect that goes through mm -hmm. the whole economy that uh, impacts a lot of our, our different uh, inputs. But I would say, and it plays into our, our more to our farm communities as well, one of the biggest uh, disruptions has been labor mm. and uh, labor availability, labor costs, uh, higher labor wages. But finding people that are willing and able to work, we had COVID introduce its own sort of narrative of how labor disruption and who's going to work in a manufacturing plant and how do we find labor? But as we as we look at the labor situation here in uh, 23, 24, uh, you know, one of the uh, measures that I like to track a lot here for Kentucky are just our H2A mm -hmm. uh, wage rates. And we're looking at for 2024, an increase from uh, the 1426 an hour in 23 up to 1515 mm -hmm. uh, an hour another pretty big spike. And mm -hmm. those uh, labor wage rates for uh, our migrant worker folks that are helping us in our 
production ag spaces have just become uh, more and more challenging. Talking to a gal down at the fruit and vegetable growers meeting, even a relatively small farm uh, in Kentucky, but she's saying they have 15 H-2A workers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the impact that that has on farm level production is substantial. When you're talking about an industry uh, on the produce side, you're looking at 30 to 40% of your total cost of production are labor related. Mm-hmm. And it's similar, Alexis, when you go over and look into the uh, cut flower nursery mm-hmm. greenhouse uh, space there as well, it's a different kind of labor. Mm-hmm. But Finding good workers that can come in and and do the job is increasingly a challenge for us, no matter what market channel. Well, and it's it's skilled labor, right? Like that's always something you have to remind when like I'm I've had people say, oh, I've got, you know, some high school workers that would love to come, you know, do stuff. But it's not it's not that I can just take any high schooler and and throw them in the field and not and they're just going to be able to work for me. You know, it's, it's not to say that they couldn't with some education, but I I have to take time. And that's the same, whether it's flowers or veggies, you know, knowing when a melon is ripe, knowing to look for insects, whatever that is, it's skilled labor. And I think some of us forget that sometimes, like, why are we paying them $15 an hour? Well, because you have to educate, they learn, they know Mm -hmm. things they are educated in this. And, and that's just, sorry, that's my soapbox. I get a little upset about like farming is skilled labor. (laughs) It's interesting that we, we have some producers, Alexis, that, um, you know, they were traditional, more traditional row crop producers. They had a history Mm -hmm. in tobacco, but the reason that they got into vegetable production or any kind of high tunnel greenhouse production originally was to manage their labor schedules so that they would have year round work to keep labor. And I don't, I kind of knew that I'd seen that on paper, but hearing this very good producer just spell it out and lay that out was, it was kind of like a bell went off in my head. And uh, he said, it's about my labor. He said, I've trained these guys. They're dependable. I'm going to have year round work for these guys. So he was actually diversifying his production, not for the sake of diversification, but to manage his labor. Really interesting, really interesting discussion with this guy. It was several years ago, but yeah, kind of a little light went off in my head. I'm a little slower sometimes, but he kind of walked me through it. And I was like, yeah, I kind of knew that, but the, he just really put the emphasis on the labor and keeping skilled labor. He said, I will not lose my labor. If I do, that's my operation. So he valued it that much, but it's exactly what you were saying, Alexis. Skilled labor that's trained and ready to go. Yeah. Big deal. Big deal. As I I think about some of these, you know, uh, both the macroeconomic implications and also the ways that that's affecting folks, you know, here in Kentucky or here in the U.S., one of the one of the decisions every producer has to make, I think, is about um, how extensive or intensive they want their operation to be. And if it goes by the amount of sweat that I contributed to the soil at the UK South Farm back when I used to work in high tunnels, I would say that's a pretty intensive uh, kind of system. And I, I'm I'm still making a pitch to the nat- the Natural Resource Conservation Service to declare Kentucky the high high tunnel capital of the U.S. based on the number of NRCS high tunnels that went up. But this this uh, controlled environment agriculture CEA we sometimes call it, which uh, it could depending on who you talk to, it may be greenhouses, it may be high tunnels. That's just been a huge part of the conversation. And obviously all those increasing costs and everything else affects that. 
I'm curious because, you know, we, we've been right on the forefront of a lot of that controlled environment stuff and the development of that. We have some really great people we're going to have on the podcast in the future who are working very specifically with controlled environment growers. What what do you think, Tim, you know, over the, if you think back over the last, I would say, five years or so, maybe a little more. And then now the present moment, what are some of the key stories, key considerations on that that controlled environment stuff? Yeah, so. It's, there's so much to say around that, and it's changing fast. I guess I would want to even take a, a kind of a wider lens, a chronological view to see how even with things like high tunnels, it's a relatively recent phenomenon here in Kentucky uh, in terms of uh, simple uh, production uh, enclosures that initially were put in place to a plasticulture type system to grow some transplants, maybe do a little bit of season extension. Uh, a few of only the very sophisticated leading commercial growers would be involved with those. But we saw that program just really uh, expand over the course of the last seven to 10 years or so to now where Kentucky is by far the biggest player in the U.S. South for NRCS-funded high tunnels. We have over 1,200 high tunnels that, that were funded between uh, 2010 to 2020, and uh, on, uh, almost 3 million square feet of high tunnel uh, uh, acreage. But what that's, what's been driving that, I think, Brett, has been more and more sophisticated producers that are looking at opportunities to take advantage of being into the markets earlier. That could be a farmer's market. It could be uh, an on-farm retail market. It could be taking advantage of getting into the produce markets where uh, prices tend to be a little bit stronger earlier, later season, season extension opportunities, and more and more producers, especially in the last few years, looking at how can this support something like CSA or how can this support something like uh, even year-round production and these kind of off, what we've considered off-season uh, systems, producers getting more sophisticated uh, where they'll have two or three of these high tunnel systems that are all integrated into their their production system as a way of managing risk for weather, uh, uh, for markets, uh, a little bit more intensive production system. And as I'm sort of watching it play out, it seems to me like it's almost this staging up of where are we going with even this next stage of thinking about controlled environment, controlled risk management. And uh, as we've seen here in the last few years, uh, it's almost been a, you know, one step, two step, three step, 20 step leap <laughs> then up to this uh, uh, big, massive uh, glass structure a controlled environment uh, kind of system, but there's a lot in between. And actually we have a lot of producers that are using more and more sophisticated, not just high tunnels, but glass and other kinds of production, soilless media, uh, uh, supplemental lighting, supplemental heat, uh, looking for ways to manage risk, manage production, take advantage of what they see as emerging market uh, opportunities and moving the kind of technology of how we do production at the farm toward the market opportunities that they see. 
the challenge is keeping in mind um, the costs and the risks and, uh, you know, the risks that come with uh, the infrastructure costs that are involved with this. And there's still labor and there's yeah. still, uh, you know, a lot of these other things that you have to be uh, thinking about as you're thinking about the feasibility of one system versus another. So, so one thing I'm hearing is that it is more expensive to build a semi-permanent structure and cover it in plastic to grow vegetables than to just grow them in the ground and hope that Mother Nature plays along. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I did a high tunnel talk at the fruit and vegetable conference and I told everybody and I was like, who in here has a high tunnel? And, you know, they raise their hand. I'm like, congratulations. You have a toddler that you now manage and it never grows up. You have a toddler 24 <laughs> seven, 365 for as long as that baby is up. Right. Is up. <laughs> right. I've heard, uh, I've heard one farmer talking about likening it to suddenly I feel like I'm in the dairy business. I've got to be yeah. out <laughs> all, there, all, yeah. all there all the time. Twice a day. Yeah. It's now yeah. your lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys find that, and this is more of a, a CCD question, I guess. But as uh, producers get bigger, they get more sophisticated. At what point, because, and I'll ask this, um, producers have to start thinking about, you know, managing risk, you know, and prices and marketing forward and, and having the crop marketed before. They, I mean, uh, do you guys find that with the increase in sophistication of production that uh, producers, larger scale, and you guys that work on a state scale, this is more for you guys, a question for you all. Uh, do you find that uh, producers just naturally start to ask those things? In fact, I guess what I'm asking is once they get too big to fail, they have too much invested to just fail easily. I mean, uh, do are producers kind of making that progression as well on the managing risk side? I certainly hope they are because I know greenhouses, these structures aren't cheap and there's lots of money tied up in labor and materials and getting a crop, uh, you know, off and going and to market. Uh, are producers kind of asking the right questions there uh, as they progress up the production chain? I think so. I mean, I feel like that's where we've got a full-time employment with our CCD group. Uh, you know, is trying to provide good resource information on uh, cost, technology options, even with high tunnels. I mean, you know, there's many different kinds of high tunnels. Do you have a, a sliding high tunnel that can actually move back and forth? Do you have mm -hmm. different kinds of structures? I mean, there's so many different options that are out there, and especially when you move into starting to add glass or supplemental heat or supplemental light. You have all these marginal improvements that, that can be made. And I feel like that's really the frontier of where we're at right now in terms of extension, trying to uh, catch up with the best options and come alongside producers as they're asking questions. And there are a lot of variables mm. and it's not an easy, uh, kind of an easy formula to just plug in and do this, don't do that. No, sure. Yeah. There's a lot have, of resources that producers have too. Oh, yeah. I have a couple of thoughts about this. I've thought a lot about high tunnels from different from different angles. So one of them is, I think when high tunnels came onto the scene and still now there's this, this focus on season extension as one of the key components of that. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong, that is a major reason to have a high tunnel 
because surprise, now you can grow stuff outside the traditional window of markets that you that you have had access to before. Now, Brett, you're messing up our rest period that we've talked so much about in the winter. We're like trees. We're going to drop our leaves <laughs> and, and hibernate. We're going to go dormant, aren't we? Yeah. Or is that well, not the, the case now? The people who go who go uh, you know pedal to the metal. That's more of a question <laughs> to talk through with your therapist than it is with your uh, ag economy. All the time. Don't yeah. tell me what to do. <laughs> But the, the other component of when you extend that season is if you were relying on a traditionally seasonal market, something like a farmer's market, something mm-hmm. like a traditional window CSA, now you have to think about selling that product to people who are not used to buying local produce in November, December, or uh, you know February, March. That's one key thing. And I think that one of the solutions or one of the proposed things was that maybe farm to school would be an angle mm-hmm. that people could pursue with that. And I think there have been people who've had mixed success with that. One of the challenges is the you're growing a premium local product and you're going to have to sell it to a school that's trying to figure out how it can can afford a, a balanced plate when uh, a menu. The other two things, though, that I heard you kind of mention uh, that we've mentioned a couple of times is that viewing the, the tunnel not only as a season extension tool, but also as a, a risk management tool mm-hmm. in several different ways. And I'll just give a couple of examples of that. So one is that the that we we had a, a a I used to work in the high tunnels at the UK research farm and we had replicate plots so we had the <laughs> high tunnel and then a, a a plot that was outdoors and they were planted exactly the same and one year we grew some these beautiful tasty red italian sweet peppers now if you know anything about peppers you know that they usually go a green pepper well, if you leave it on, will turn into a red or yellow pepper eventually, i.e. the longer you, the more sweet and delicious and marketable you want that pepper to be, it being especially colored, the longer it's going to be in the field. Mm-hmm. And if you know about Kentucky, you know that we have these lovely summers that are extremely wet and there'll be cool nights sometimes and then warm nights so that the bacteria and the fungi are both happy on the plants. So we had a, we had a plot, same length of row of these peppers. And one day we harvested 30 pounds of marketable peppers out of one row row of these peppers. In the high tunnel, that same day, we harvested 160 pounds of marketable (laughs) peppers out of that. Because Mm -hmm. you literally have an umbrella up over the the peppers. And so all the water they get, you're giving to them right at Mm -hmm. their roots where they want it. And the peppers don't rot. And then the other thing, the other component of the, the management is the, the climate resilience component. Barring the crazy high winds that the tunnels <laughs> like to take a ride on sometimes, other major climactic events that could really decimate an outdoor crop, you have some degree mm-hmm. of ability to manage that so that the plants themselves aren't damaged or aren't, don't have a problem. And so I think that's been one of the main pieces of evolution that I've seen in high tunnel growers is understanding, yes, it will give you windows to market products out of outside the traditional window of, of the market. And there's challenges with that, but also that this provides you a little bit of a buffer against mm-hmm. some of the crazy and unprecedented weather events that we're seeing uh, in the state. And that's something that, that you mentioned earlier. So I think as far as the risk management, just from a production side, uh, it has some real key benefits, but again, you have to manage it really intensively because it can also cause major problems when it's really, really hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, yeah. as anybody who has one, did you, did you see, have you seen a bunch of t- tunnels go up in your County, Ray? 
Yeah, we, um, we've had several even since I've been there in uh, Bourbon County, 13, 14 years. There's lots, and I'll just be driving along the road, and I'm like, have I just missed that, or am I just now noticing that? <laughs> and it's interesting, and those producers, uh, Tim, you mentioned earlier that uh, they've kind of gotten sophisticated. They started out growing in ground, and now several of them have went on to just various type of substrates that they're growing in, bag mixes and pop mm-hmm. mixes and core and you know bark mixes. It is incredibly difficult to try to keep up with these producers because they're savvy and they're trying things and they're pushing the envelope of production. But yeah, yeah, to answer your question in short, Brett, uh, sure, I've uh, seen a big increase in that. Uh, and, uh, and I'm I'm very careful now about making an assumption. I'm like a high tunnel is a high tunnel. Boy, once they open those up out of Lexus, I don't know if you see this, but I never know quite what I'm going to see. I've seen some very interesting production systems uh, <laughs> in those. And I just wonder, is that kind of what's driving? Uh, Tim, did you say that there was an increase in receipts overall in Kentucky? Kind of a trend, you and Brett and those uh, those of you that look at numbers a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, is, it the driving, is this what's driving that? Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a part of it. You know, I think it's, it, the thing about the high tunnel is it, it plays so well to our small scale producers. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. You've got limited ground, perhaps you're producing primarily for a local market. Uh, you're trying to produce really high quality uh, products for a farm stand or an on-farm retail market. Uh, and uh, even moving into organic production, it lends itself mm-hmm. really well in those uh, uh, production uh, systems. And so the more that you can control the quality and through an intensive production system, uh, bring a higher quality product to market. Even in our produce auctions, we see wide ranges of low price to high price. And talk about a marketplace that will immediately reward people who have a higher quality product. If I bring my my peppers in there and they're all uh, nicely sized, beautiful, and put that next to another box of pepper that has sunspots, dirt, uh, just dragged in the, from the field, misshapen. You immediately see how come that guy gets twelve box, twelve dollars for a box, and I get three dollars for a box. And the market disciplines that. And those market prices are always there, sort of promoting these uh, marginal movements toward being able to produce better quality products. And and I think in our direct to consumer market spaces that dominate Kentucky, those tend to get especially uh, rewarded. Yeah, absolutely. We see that at the farmer's market and the price. I mean, different markets set their prices different ways. I've worked with markets that set like a a base price that you can't go under. And I've worked with markets mm-hmm. that don't set any kind of pricing. But uh, the pricing has always been interesting at markets, to say the least. But I feel like the quality being driven up is is a... Yeah, I've seen that over the years that you get this beautiful stuff. And Alexis alluded to it at a time when normally you would not see beautiful things. Or Brett mentioned it with the peppers. You're seeing these beautiful, colorful peppers that I would that you would just never see grown locally, fresh for a local mm-hmm. fresh market because the risk involved in growing those peppers that long in the season. But we're starting to see that it's fetching higher prices, and it's almost like a standoff when Farmer A looks at Farmer B and they're like, mm, "He raised just thirty cents," and that's the the pricing strategies there sometimes really interesting to watch play out at markets but yeah the quality is definitely uh, from my experience of just looking around different markets working with my own local market it's it's increased and a lot of it is due to the fact of this protected agriculture aspect 
of high tunnels, greenhouses, things like that. You know, it makes me wonder, like when talking about the idea of risk management and infrastructure improvement, I'm kind of curious is, and maybe it's too recent for there to have been studies, but have there been, or have you noticed any slowdown in the adoption of technologies? Not set, not necessarily high tunnels because they're kind of cost-shared through the USDA, but in adopting some new technologies due to the increase in interest rates that's kind of mm, popped right. up in the last like handful of years and gone up, you know, pretty steeply. Yeah, that's a that's a great observation, Josh, and that that certainly has been a big driver to see higher. Uh, we see higher glass costs, higher building costs, higher construction, waiting mm-hmm. time periods for people to come in and do construction. Uh, if you're putting up a, a glass house or even a barn or packing shed or something like this. And so those costs are definitely higher. And I think that that hopefully is getting more of our producers to at least put a little bit of a slow down on how quickly they're moving into some of the new technology mm. that's capital intensive like that. Right. To think about how am I funding this and and what is what's going to be realistically the cost and timing of being able to put this uh, new system uh, together. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you always have the learning cost too of once you get a system in place, how do I learn to t- best take advantage of it? And we've had some, as you guys all know, some uh, kind of pretty high profile infrastructure <laughs> go up, sure. go down mm-hmm. uh, challenges in Kentucky. Yeah. And, uh, well, yeah. So that talking about the, I just want to, we have so many things we could talk. I think already feeling like we could talk to you about three hours and not even scratch <laughs> the surface, but interrogate you for three hours. You mentioned some fire, of those, yeah. some of those macro scale things about just the overall construction costs, overall, you know, building considerations, et cetera. And it, it makes me think of one of the, the biggest yet. Sometimes we, we don't talk about it as much in a, on the podcast and elsewhere parts of the of the industry which is the nursery side of things that the fact that mm-hmm. surprise surprise people like to have plants at their houses <laughs> and their landscaping and so as with housing and with other other macroeconomic trends so go things like the nursery and greenhouse industry so any any major insights as far as recent recent trends there or thoughts about that and the way that that just generally intersects and inter- interacts with other parts of our of our culture Mm. Yeah, you know, that that industry in Kentucky is really an important specialty crop player. More than double the, the value of the cash receipts that are generated through our greenhouse, garden center uh, spaces. A lot of times what I tend to watch for in the nursery greenhouse uh, sector in terms of big drivers are things like uh, housing starts and uh, construction and mm-hmm. those sort of things that lead to people buying more plant material, more sod, uh, all that sort of thing. And largely, as you guys very well know, higher interest rates has put a big pause on a lot of new housing uh, uh, starts. Mm-hmm. But quite interestingly, uh, uh, even through this past year with higher uh, inflation and higher uh, product costs, I don't know if, if part of it was maybe a post-COVID uh, response by consumers, again, looking for some sort of experiential way to engage 
flowers and plant material and things like this, our garden centers saw one of the most profitable years that they've ever seen. And uh, not just in Kentucky, but, um, but nationally. And, you know, it's, it could be, you know, coming out of COVID, people are looking for ways to plant some flowers or plant some plant material or shrubs and things around their, uh, around their house. And uh, even with the high, some of the higher costs that are involved, willing to pay those higher prices. And just the one other thing I'd maybe mention, Brett, in terms of just some of the economics there, just like we see in our produce spaces, labor is a critical input there. And yeah. a lot of our garden centers and nursery folks pointing to labor as one of the biggest barriers that they've seen to be able to get to the, to the margins that they would like, to be able to grow like they would like, uh, access to labor and uh, Alexis, like you're talking about skilled labor, people mm-hmm. that know what they're doing uh, in the production spaces there can be really hard to find. And uh, I think that's going to continue to be a challenge for us as we're moving here into the next several years. I know our local operation, Tim, and you've probably worked with them uh, some. Bell Greenhouses, they were when they reestablished themselves here in Bourbon County, the head grower was so excited that he said they were able to get back. I think, I don't want to misquote, but the, uh, almost every single one of the growers that had, you know, disbanded with an earlier operation were able to bring a lot of those back and it goes back to skilled labor. And you talk about an excited person <laughs> when they were able to bring the old crew back that knew the facilities. Mm-hmm. Of course, they made a lot of upgrades to that facility already, but he was so excited not to have to go through at least the training for that level of worker. And they, the workers have workers under them, but yet that was pure excitement. And it all went back to what Alexa said, the skilled labor. They were able to recapture that. And I thought that was just a rare situation uh, and I, from an earlier operation that had, you know, changed up and changed ownership and, and uh, a period of time had passed and they were able to bring them back. And I thought it was incredible. I thought it was incredible. But it all goes back to not having to do so much training for that labor. It's pretty right. great. Yeah. Right. Well, I think um, I, I can say from experience, the post-COVID reconnecting with plants, I think mm-hmm. me and my wife might be responsible for like 0.01% of that uh, boost <laughs> to the nursery greenhouse You're doing industry. your part. <laughs> yeah, feels like it. But and, and I'm already looking ahead and and, and I think uh, next week or in a couple, uh, upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about our plans for our gardens and stuff for 2024. As you as an ag economist look ahead to 2024, mm-hmm. what are some of the things, you know, in Kentucky, nationally, whatever you want to, however you want to riff on it, that you're, you're looking ahead to? Yeah, well, you know, I think the the slow, steady, gradual change sort of things to watch are the... Uh, continued changes in imports and the wholesale market impacts and how many of our larger volume wholesale market channels are adjusting to things like this. I try to watch really closely how might those be impacting even things like our produce auction uh, Hmm. markets. And surprisingly to date, they've been relatively insulated. Uh, even though they've grown and we have order buyers and larger volume folks that are buying regionally out of those auctions now, uh, we still tend to be in this market bubble, I think, here in Kentucky. And so I think, uh, again, 
inflation and higher prices are going to uh, hopefully slow down here and, and uh, I think give some better opportunity for a lot of our direct-to-consumer market opportunities that, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of those input costs start to come back uh, a little bit, especially things like uh, fossil-based uh, fertilizers mm-hmm. and uh, fuel and uh, interest rates a little bit. Uh, and so hopefully we'll see some of the production costs not go higher, but stay the same or come down a little bit for many of our producers here uh, coming up. But I think the thing that I am watching probably the most is where on earth are we going with this controlled environment space? Mm. You know, the vertical farming system kinds of things where you're basically 100% artificial light uh, enclosed uh, system, primarily leafy greens, but other kinds of products there as well. And we've got several really, really big systems that have uh, started production in Kentucky, some that have started and stopped already, but a lot of investment uh, that's going on there. And how might that be impacting our our local markets? Uh, I know some of these folks are pursuing partnerships with some of our big, uh, well-known uh, regional retail grocers, uh, but also in the just the controlled environment greenhouse spaces. We've seen some turnover and some changes, some new management, some new uh, kinds of production focus uh, that's going on there. That story is not done by any means. Uh, And I think like any kind of a new technology and a new industry that goes through a lot of growing pains, uh, there are going to be some uh, high profile failures, but there are going to be some (laughs) learning, some circling back around. And uh, yeah, how that's going to impact our, our local markets. I think all that stuff is still to be, uh, still to be determined. Uh, you know, I think in the short term, I think our folks are looking at a really positive 2024 in terms of market uh, prospects, a lot of interest in local products. Good. Uh, uh, but, you know, this industry has seen a long, steady 20 to 30 year uh, growth. What are we looking at for the next five years? It's uh, going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, something yeah, that's, that stood out to me in the in the graphs you sent out that I was surprised by, although I guess I shouldn't be, is that we are consuming, like in the U.S., more vegetables per capita. Like the, the first one that stood out to me was like the millions of pounds imported in production growing much faster than the rate of our population. Like I think the population's only increased like 60% in that time, but the production volume has increased like 250% in that time. You know, from that perspective, in the big picture, there's just a lot more demand for horticultural products, at least mm-hmm. in terms of vegetables. Are people just eating their vegetables now? Is that what's happening? Well, uh, you, you raise a whole nother topic. <laughs> uh, you know, what... The, the tragic news in Kentucky, you guys may, may have heard this statistic before, is only 6% of Kentuckians eat their recommended daily fruit and vegetable intake. So we have a long way to go to increase our sure. <laughs> consumption. A lot of potential. <laughs> a lot of opportunity <laughs> for growth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the shoe salesman that sees lots of bare feet out there. 
you know, but how do we how do we move the needle on that? And how, what role is there in our local production to help our folks move toward better diets? And thinking about food access, I think, is another really mm-hmm. interesting challenge and opportunity. I think for our local horticulture communities, roles for our food banks and uh, farm to school program and SNAP and other kinds of uh, food access programs where our local uh, production can play a really important role, I think. We just need to find who decided cauliflower could be everything and they marketed cauliflower as like the new wave and just have them do it for all of the vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) Or like kale was, you know, kale chips were huge there for Mm -hmm. a while. So (laughs) we need like limited edition drops of vegetables (laughs) and just a lot of hype (laughs) for a limited time only. Exactly. Yeah. Marketing. Kohlrabi pizza pizza crusts by Dre. Beats beats Mm -hmm. by Dre. I don't know. Shout out. Put a label on it. Put a label on it. They only made 200 of them and then that's it for (laughs) Just cut the, you know, carrots into shapes of dinosaurs and everyone will eat them. Like this is the answer, folks. Shave them down into baby carrots, Alexis. Make them baby carrots. (laughs) And somehow they're always soaking wet. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that are wet. Yeah. (laughs) They're kind of slurry. Well, before we uh, before we started, I frantically was googling how how to podcast like Travis and Jason Kelsey. And one of the things that they said was to when you have a big shot guest like Tim Woods, you got to give them a chance to to plug stuff, current projects, ongoing projects, etc. And so, a couple of things I'd love to love to just hear a touch more about. You know, plug where they can get more people can get more information. Two of them. So one of them is the market ready program, but the other one, you know, you kind of, I think we're tiptoeing around the edge of with the the local food demand is the local food vitality index work that you uh, and Jairus Rossi have been working on over the last several years. So yeah, please, uh, any that and anything else you want to plug and we can make sure we have links in the links in the show notes. Uh, That was another thing that I read on that blog that I was looking at earlier. (laughs) Links in the show notes. Any other uh, social media for the the CCD or any of that kind of stuff, whatever, whatever you, the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks, Brett. That's very generous. <laughs> yeah, you've been around me long enough to know where I feel like so much of the opportunity that's going to be in front of local growers is going to hinge. Certainly, you want to be mindful of your costs and and understand what is break even for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the different market opportunities, but uh, for a lot of our folks, understanding marketing is really, really important. And we've had this market ready training program that we've uh, offered through our UK extension for a number of years. Uh, that program's been uh, branched out and offered now in 17 different states. Uh, a lot of our producers have gone through that. And it's a training program on helping producers that are interested in exploring commercial markets. And that means, how do I sell to a restaurant? How do I sell to a grocery store? How do I work with a wholesaler? Uh, and there are there's a different language. There are different expectations, uh, but also tons and tons of great resources and agency partners and good folks that are willing to come alongside our producers that are looking at those opportunities. Uh, so that's one, uh, one program. A cousin to that, you had mentioned, Brett, uh, a lot of the web-based materials are kind of co-linked together in many places. Is just the Center for Crop Diversification and uh, the marketing resources, the, the uh, price 
information that's available for uh, price reports and uh, how do I sell in some of these different markets, great fact sheets and resources like that. Uh, I might just mention this. Uh, uh, you mentioned the local food vitality survey is a, a consumer Kentucky food consumer survey that we just completed uh, here in Kentucky. And we're uh, pulling out just some uh, preliminary information. We've shared a little bit of that out already. We're trying to develop a series of fact sheets we'll have on the CCD site. Uh, but it's helping our producers better understand some of the differences that we see in urban versus rural consumers, uh, older versus younger consumers. Quite encouraging to me in thinking about the interest in local food. We see our younger consumers being um, purchasing more local food products than we have seen for a long time and more than some of our more senior uh, consumers even. So there's a lot of interest in this younger generation, but they've got other kinds of values that are connected in with food as well. And I think to, to understand how younger consumers think about their food and how does it impact things like climate or food mm -hmm. safety or uh, my community and things like this uh, are all things that we're pulling out of this local food vitality. And Ray, we talked about all the different market channels that, that folks are able to sell through. We try to look at people's perceptions about many of these different market channels and their perceptions of how they're performing in different places around Kentucky. And uh, I feel like we have a really good insight now into how some of these different markets are are playing in different uh, different communities, urban, rural, east, west, south. Uh, and so lots and lots and lots of data uh, to pull together there. But we'll be pulling these uh, market reports, Brett, for our CCD site and to encourage folks to have a look there. Yeah. And one thing I, we've spent a lot of the time talking today about some of the bigger trends and, and technologies and other stuff like that. And I just want to emphasize Tim and I both spend a, a lot of our time working to support very small, very uh, direct to consumer type markets, farmers markets, community supported agriculture, uh, on farm stands, all that kind of stuff too. So if you're if you're interested in selling or you're not haven't gotten started yet, maybe check out our episode on the Hort Biz Quiz. Uh, can kind of orient you to some of the stuff that we have. But I just think over the last, as you, as you said, 27 years in Kentucky, you've just done a lot to support people at whatever scale that they're at, and whatever their goals are and what they want to do. And um, so if that's something that you're interested in, getting just checking out some of the stuff we have available across those things that, that Tim just mentioned um, would be a good first step. And you can reach out to, to any of us and get in contact with your local agent. But yeah, uh, thank you so much, Tim, for, for spending some time talking through this stuff with us. I think we all learned quite a bit and are looking forward to some of that stuff you have, we have in the works coming out over the next year. You can, you can connect with the, the CCD it's uh, on Facebook and on Instagram and on YouTube. Our handles there are at CCDUKY. So anybody else have anything else good for the good of the order? For the good of the order. I like that. <laughs> Brett's well, rules of order. <laughs> motion, to motion passes. We are the fellowship. Yes. It was nice Ooh. to have you today. So <laughs> you can follow along with us on Instagram at Hort Culture Podcast. You can shoot us an email. We'll have that email in the show notes or a message uh, if you've got any ideas for upcoming episodes, if you've got any questions, if you're like, 
uh, this Tim Woods character sounds like a genius. How do I get in contact with him? We will we will send you his email. Okay, uh, so <laughs> we really appreciate you being on Doctor Woods, and uh, I really look forward to and use a lot of that information uh, with a lot of growers out there. So we're grateful that you do all that all that good work. But yeah, thank you guys for being with us today with the with the fellow. I like to call us the fellowship. I think we should start doing that. But anyways, thank you for being with us today. We're happy motion, to have you. Motion defeated. Motion, motion defeated. Why? They <laughs> ruin everything we're I the, love. We're the true leaves. Remember, true leaves. Can't no, just our, follower. our, our <laughs> followers are true leaves. Josh, mm. get it together. Where have you been? Leaders, anyways, follower, it's all the same. <laughs> we love you all. Thank you for being here. And we'll chat with you next time.